you there, Aaron? Is it true? You didn't tell anyone where you were going. That's the trailer for the film 127 Hours, which is based on the true story of Aaron Ralston, who became stuck under a boulder in a cannon in Utah. After 127 hours of watching his pinned right arm decompose, he came to the realisation that unless he cut off his arm, then septicemia would set in, flow through his veins to his heart, spread to his whole body, and kill him. The situation was so drastic that Ralston was willing to actually snap the bones in his forearm, then cut through the tendons and arteries with a pocket knife to get out of that canyon and save his life. He was willing to do all that, even if it meant living the rest of his life without an arm. In the passage that Grace just read to us, Jesus takes a similar view about sin. He likens it to stumbling saying that if a hand, foot or eye causes you to stumble in sin, then you should cut it off or pluck it out and hobble into heaven without them, rather than stride boldly into hell. For Jesus, this is an urgent situation that requires drastic action. According to Jesus, so serious is the situation that we can't nurse apathy about our sinful stumbling, because like septicemia, it will spread and bring about our downfall into what he says is the unquenchable fire of hell. Saving our life is a drastic reality for Jesus. Now, it might surprise you to hear Jesus speak like this about severing limbs and unquenchable fire. You might just assume that the hellfire and brimstone talk is for crazies on social media, or perhaps you think it's just the God of the Old Testament who speaks like this in the Bible. Our assumption about Jesus is that he was all about loving your enemies, turning the other cheek and just being a chill dude. And he was. He is. But percentage-wise, Jesus spends far more time speaking about hell than anyone else in the Bible, even God the Father in the Old Testament. Now, I don't enjoy talking about hell. And I don't think Jesus enjoyed talking about it either. In one instance in the New Testament, Jesus breaks down into tears when he is talking about it. The only way to speak about hell is through tears. Part of me would prefer to not ever talk about it, to just lop off that little bit of God's truth from the Bible. But then I would be doing the exact opposite of what Jesus commands in that passage we just read. I would be cutting out the loving, urgent truth and holding on to my sinful pride of thinking that I know better than God and letting that spread like gangrene myself and to others. So as we come to this difficult topic today, I know you're going to be offended. Hell is offensive. But please know that I have read and thought and prayed through anguished tears this week about this talk. I bring this urgent message to you this morning in love. So let's break the question down into parts. First, we'll deal with the idea of 
a loving God. The assumption we usually have about a loving God is that if he is loving, well, then he can't be angry at us, that he has to forgive us. We assume that love and anger cannot go together. So if if God is loving, well, then he can't angrily send us to hell, right? But let's think for a moment about our own anger, about the things that make us really angry, blood-boilingly angry. That kind of anger is often fueled by love. If someone hurts a family member, we feel angry because of our love for our family. I can remember sitting with a close friend whose child had been brutally attacked and the perpetrator pretty much got off scot-free. And we were talking about it all years after the event. My friend's anger, the injustice and pain that his child went through was still palpable in his voice and his body language. See, anger and love are not incompatible feelings. The response of real justifiable anger, it springs from love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final state of hate is indifference. It is simply not caring about someone else and ignoring them, being completely apathetic towards them. And ironically, that's the very attitude that Jesus wants to correct in us when it comes to sin and hell. God's anger at our sin is fueled by love. God doesn't relish being angry and he he longs for us to reject our sinful ways. In Ezekiel 33, God himself says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So I guess that begs the question, if God doesn't enjoy being angry at our sin, well, why does he have a punishment like hell? Why does he judge us and not just let everyone off if he is such a good and loving judge? Well, imagine an earthly judge for a moment. Let's say that she is hearing the case of some businessman who has embezzled millions of dollars from his company and cheated many people out of their life savings. This judge, she will hear hours of testimony from weeping victims of the businessman's crime, and the facts of the case are undeniable. Now imagine that after all that, the judge bangs her gavel and says, Not guilty. You are free to go. And she smiles warmly at the dodgy businessman. Well, people would be outraged, wouldn't they? They would demand a retrial. But what would make it even worse would be if outside the courthouse, on the steps, the media asked the judge, Why did you let that businessman off? And she replied, Because I'm a good judge. That, of course, would be untrue. She's not a good judge. She'd be a terrible judge, an unjust, untrustworthy judge. And do we want God to be like that? I don't think so. So if we're comfortable enough with God being both loving and able to judge those who are guilty, well, then I guess who is guilty? Am I guilty? Are you? We'd like to make it really simple when we think about innocence and guilt and heaven and hell. There's, there's us the good, normal, average people. And then there's them, the obviously evil people, people who enjoy inflicting pain on others like dictators or terrorists or abusers. 
we have no problem with thinking that God should find them guilty and worthy of hell. And that's because it's really easy to judge their outward actions. Those obviously evil people have let their evil thoughts bubble up into evil actions that we can see and judge. But what if the dictators, terrorists or abusers have just chosen not to hide their evil? What if we are just generally more purposeful in hiding our evil away? It's been said that no relationship would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. What if our thoughts were like those little cartoon cloud bubbles that pop up next to us above our heads and everyone else could see them? What if every single impulse was broadcast for everyone to see? Well, I imagine if that was the case for me, that my family would be crushed, my friends would desert me, I would lose my job. I wonder what it would be like for you. Now, my thoughts are not all evil and they're not always about hiding my Macca's addiction. Uh, many of them are good. Many of my thoughts are loving and true. But at my heart, I know I'm not pure. I know there's rot there that I'm nursing, just like Aaron Ralston was nursing his rotting arm under that boulder. What about you? But if there is some rot that God can find me and everyone else guilty of, that still begs the question, does the punishment fit the crime? Is an eternity of torment in hell a fitting punishment? I mean, that old phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, comes from the Bible. It's about things being equal. In fact, so difficult is this problem that lots of us get frustrated. Here, in fact, is how Eleanor from The Good Place dealt with this problem. Oh. Let's just face it, Eleanor, you don't belong here. Well, then this system sucks. What, one in a million gets to live in paradise and everyone else is tortured for eternity? Come on. I mean, I wasn't freaking Gandhi, but I was okay. I was a medium person. I should get to spend eternity in a medium place, like Cincinnati. Everyone who wasn't perfect but wasn't terrible should get to spend eternity in Cincinnati. A medium person. A medium place. But is our sin just a medium thing. Maybe the existence of heaven and hell suggest otherwise. Maybe they suggest more about God than they do about us. Let me give you an example. We all know that lying is bad. Now let's say that you skipped the morning off school and went to Macca's. And then you came home and you watched Netflix while everyone else was out at school and work. But then you got bored and you decided to head into school around midday. You walked up to the front office, you tapped on the compass kiosk, you signed in late, and you punched in doctor's appointment, and your little ticket printed out for you. Now, you've just lied to compass, but it's just a machine, no big deal. Now, you bump into someone from another year group as you're walking to your period four class, and they say, where are you? I was at the doctor's, you tell them. You've lied again, but they're not your friend, and they're not even in the same year group as you. You arrive to class. The teacher asks where you've been and you lie again about the doctors. Now, you like this teacher. They're kind, they're fair, and you feel a little pang of guilt for lying to them. That evening, your mum walks in looking at her uh, text messages on her phone and she says, 
I didn't know you had a doctor's appointment. Oh, uh, yeah, you say. Oh, I'd organised it with Dad. Now, Mum looks at you and she asks if you're lying. And you stare into the eyes of one of the few precious people who's nearest and dearest to you and you say again, No, I was at the doctor's. You can almost taste the guilt in your throat. Even years later, you'll remember that moment and you'll flinch a little. Now, why did you have that reaction with your mum? You did exactly the same thing to the compass kiosk, to the kid another year and your teacher. See, what prompts the different reaction is not the sin of lying, but of the one you sinned against. So now, magnify that feeling to lying not just to the person who nursed, fed and raised you, but to the eternal Father who gives you your very life and provides the family, friends and very universe you inhabit. See, the more valuable the person being sinned against, the more serious the consequence of your sin. If God was just the compass kiosk, well then eternal punishment in hell would not fit the crime. It would be an overreaction. But God is not the compass kiosk. If God is perfect in goodness and love, if he is the eternal, infinite source of beauty and worth, if he is the highest source of good, well then to go against him in any way is the highest source of evil. And as gut-wrenching as an eternity in hell is, it is simply God expressing his eternal and infinite nature. Hell is a sobering reminder that God's love is not open to corruption ever. God's justice and goodness are perfectly and wonderfully inflexible. Now here's Grace again with a parable from Jesus about the afterlife. And then I've just got one more brief point to make after that reading. Luke chapter 16 verse 9. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off, with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, while you are in agony, Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, If he, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. This is a tragic tale. Even though this rich young man has been brought down from the heights of wealth into the depths of hell, he still treats Lazarus like some kind of water boy. He still refuses to accept responsibility and you'll notice he doesn't actually ask to be let out of hell. 
He's not given a name in this parable. He's just the rich man because he devoted his life to greed. And greed is what has his eternity has now become for him. An eternity of greedily groping for more. And in the end, that's really all hell is. God gives you over to whatever else other than him you have been seeking. And that thing consumes you and tortures you for eternity. Never satisfies you, always traumatizing you. Nothing is good because God's presence is absent. And this is why Jesus pleaded with the crowds through tears about hell. This is why he spoke so urgently about hell. But it's also why Jesus acted so differently to hell. Because hell is the opposite of Jesus. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it really well in her book on this topic. She writes, If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. When we talk about a loving God sending people to hell, we have to remember that Jesus is the love of God and he went to hell for us so that we don't have to foolishly stride in there ourselves. From the most obvious dictator right down to anyone who's ever lied about Maccas to their mum, this is the most offensive thing about hell. And that is that anyone can be saved from it. Anyone can be welcomed into heaven if they welcome Jesus. This is good news for us because we are more sinful than we realise or are willing to admit. But just because of Jesus, we can be more known, more loved and more truly alive than we could ever imagine.